Good afternoon, it's one o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. That's the Daily Mav- time for the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. I'm Stilly Harolumbus, your host. I'm joined in studio by Richard with Richard Poplack, uh, author of Until Julius Comes and Daily Maverick Journal, and Andrea Teagle, our resident uh, intern and go-to rent-a-card person for the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to kick off with uh, a little bit of fun, uh, changing up the, the formula for the show. Uh, we've got a, a, a word of the day and a, and a fact of the day, and uh, we hand over to Andrea for that. Okay, great. Um, I'll start with the word of the day. Um, it's not actually an English word, but I think we could um, incorporate it into English quite happily. Um, it's actually a Tsonga word, and it's, I'm not sure about pronunciation, but the word is rue, um, and it means to sleep on the floor without a mat, well-drunk, and naked. Um, so I think that could be used yeah, probably, quite fruitfully. Yeah, and probably has been used quite quite a lot without I'm, I'm sure. people knowing that there's a word for it. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I feel enriched. It is now part of my lexicon. I <laughs> about that. Um, should have known that word a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so, how, how does that pronunciation go again, Andrea? <laughs> well, spell it for us. It's um, R H W E. R H W E. Okay. So, uh, there's no one here who can really help. It, us out it, it almost that sounds one. like a sound you would make Wait. in the fetal position Wait. on the floor. Well, like when you wake up, re- realizing yeah. that it's going to be a really bad day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, great. And the uh, fact of the day. Um, so the fact of the day is about um, people's pupils dilating and how what you can tell from that aside from whether or not they're high. Um, there's been some, quite a lot of research which shows that when people are very engaged in a task, um, their pupils dilate, and it's like a measure of, of how difficult the task is. Well, alternatively, if people are, are very attracted to the person that they're looking at, their pupils dilate as well. Um, and maybe because subconsciously we associate dil- dilated pupils to that person feeling attracted towards you, um, the response often is that people will find other people with dilated pupils um, attractive in return. Um, so the economist and psychologist Daniel Kahneman, also not sure if that's how you pronounce his name, but um, in his book Thinking Fast and Slow, he described research where um, a whole lot of people were presented with pairs of pictures, um, which were identical photos of people with the only um, change being that the, pupil, the person's pupils were dilated in one and not the other. And consistently, people rated the pictures um, where the people had the dilated pupils as more attractive. But when they were asked why, um, you know, they had no idea at all that that was the that was you know the factor mm. that. That's so the only difference so, was the dilated pupils, and that made that made up for the extra attractive. Right, and they you know they all said, well, that person was just looking a lot better in the second photo, mm. you know. But actually, the, it it was literally you know it was just an artificially enlarged pupil, and that was the only difference. So. Okay. Um, well, it yeah. brings a new meaning to the word sexy pupils. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. Um, Richard, you've had a, a bit of a whirlwind couple of weeks now. I mean, the book, uh, Until Julius Come, has just been out. You've been on this roadshow. You've been, you know, being interviewed to death. Um, how's it been? How's the last couple of weeks been for you? Yeah, it's been an absolute, uh, it's been a freak show. Um, lots and lots of running around. Um, it's sort of, uh, you know, I landed, I, I was on a, I was on a road trip uh, to the Central African Republic. Which is uh, by no by no measure a vacation resort, and its own freak show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freak show to freak show. Yeah, it is a it is a strange place. Um, and, and then I landed here, and and then the whole until Julius comes tsunami sort of broke. Um, yeah, lots of running around, lots of interviews. Um, what's you know, been the initial feedback like? Uh, great, 
uh, it, it's been really, really, really gratifying. I think people are reading it. I think they're really enjoying it. Um, those that aren't enjoying it are not enjoying it in ways that are entertaining. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there's, there's been, you know, there's been some strange encounters. I, I ran into, uh, into the official opposition leader, uh, who is still Helen Zilla, believe mm-hmm. it or not, uh, last night. And she was, uh, decidedly unhappy to see me. Yeah. So, you know, there was uh, a bit of frosting on it. There was a little bit of frosting. A little bit yeah. of frosting. So uh, you gain some followers and you lose a few. Yeah. Mm. Uh, do you know if, uh, Julius has read the book? Uh, no, I don't believe he has. I, I do know that, uh, that a bunch of the upper EFF guys have. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I don't, uh, I don't think he does a whole hell of a lot of the reading. Yeah. And that, and that's not for the reason, the reason most people think he's got a, you know, he got a G in woodshop. Um, but he's not, he's not everyone's idea of a great, uh, of a, of a great pupil. Yeah. Uh, dilated or otherwise. Dilated, yeah. mm. Uh, but he, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's a really, really busy guy. And, uh, you know, this is stuff he, it's probably best he stays away from. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and what's been the feedback by those guys? I'm, I'm guessing it's Andile and, uh, uh, yeah, Andile and Zitama and, um, and, uh, uh, Moya Basani, uh, and Glozi, who's the, who's the national spokesperson. Uh, Andile called me a cuck writer, although he mm. believes I, I quote, write, quote. yeah, this is, yeah. Uh, although he believes I write very well, the stuff that I write is, um, utter cuck. <laughs> so, um, there you go. That's, that's one okay. view. Well, that's one uh, view. But Yasani was, was actually reasonably contra- complimentary about some of the stuff, but didn't understand, uh, some of the positions that I arrived at. Um, positions, he, uh, pertaining to the EFF yes, or to, uh, to yeah. other, yeah, no, no, no. The, other to, to the EFF. Um, yeah, I have no doubt they, they agreed with just about everything I had to say about the other parties. But, um, with regard to the EFF, yeah, I, I think, uh, we do drift on, on points of ideology. Um, although probably not as much as they think. I mean, I, you know, I'm a born and bred punk. I, you know, I'm not right or left. Uh, but as far as Andile is, is concerned, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a right wing, uh, lunatic who's probably <laughs> best served joining the Tea Party in the United States of America. Um, and I say, you know, and, and, you know, as far as, uh, I mean, anybody left right of Shea is, yeah. is left of, uh, <laughs> Of Andilla. So yeah, it's all, uh, it's all there. It's all sort of swirling around in the ether. Yeah. Do you feel like, uh, you're a Julius expert, a Julius Malema expert now? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the timing, you know, one could look at the timing and go, it's quite fortuitous, but I think it's more by design really, because that was kind of the theme that you picked out from the elections was the emergence of Julius. So not really fortuitous. It was just kind of, kind of calling, calling it right. Right. You know, and, and so on this tour, you know, and, being interviewed ad nauseum, mm-hmm. you know, it almost comes across as <clears throat> you're the go-to Julius Malema expert now. Well, I think what, what happened, um, and I'd love to say it was by design, and I'm going to say it was by design <laughs> for the purposes of this conversation, is that very early in the election campaign, I identified the fact that the, that the major meme was going to be the EFF. Um, very... Uh, y- one of the first interviews I did was with Vikas Kotze, who was the white EFF, white EFF guy. guy yeah. And when I spoke to uh, the uh, Daily Maverick upper, upper echelons about uh, going to speak to him, um, it was right after a Saturday Star story broke about him, which sort of, um, which sort of portrayed him as a bit of a buffoon with the, you know, a, a, a dangerous case of jungle mm. fever. You know, he, this was his second marriage to a to a black woman. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was besotted and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the way he was sort of cast seemed a little odd to me, but I was intrigued. 
and I went off and met him. And very quickly, and, no, and obviously no resistance from the editor to to go ahead and do the story. No, of course yeah, not. Yeah yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then playing to the theme that the EFF was going to be probably the biggest story from uh, you know from the elections. I mean, recognizing yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, I, I mean, all of us, all of us, I think, mm. sort of realized that there was definitely stories there. Uh, but but Kotzer for me was what sort of sealed the deal because on meeting him, I realized that he wasn't a buffoon. He was actually mm. a really really smart guy, uh, really uh, really ideologically driven. Uh, he had 20 years, more than 20 years of organizing on the ground. He understood how South African politics works from a grassroots level. And South African politics is, is the organizing uh, thereof is extremely sophisticated. I mean, there's parties all over the Western world, uh, you know, political parties who could learn enormously mm. from, um, certainly from uh, the, the ANC's institutional mm. memory. That on uh, the ground stuff. That, that, that on the ground stuff. How do you get down to the very last person in the very smallest ward in the country? Mm-hmm. These guys know how to do it. They really do. They're excellent organizers. There's all these structures that, that political parties in this country have to build in order to be successful. And do you think that stems from um, an era or, or almost an entire generation where that miscommunication, segregation of you know, preventing people from congregating, uh, that kind of forced them into being able to, to, you know, to take up those skills and be able to get people to mobilize in that way? Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, we speak a lot about social media and the, and the, the sort of importance of social media and, and getting through to people and contacting people. But uh, that's all overblown. The, the, the way things are done are the same way they were done in the 1950s. That is, you had to go into people's homes and say, look, this was happening. This is happening. Let's, let, let, let's band together on this. The teachers are striking. The students are striking. Uh, we have a long history of that, of organizing in this country. Um, I think we've lost uh, – it's, it's been commodified. It's been politicized. Um, it's no longer civic action. We've lost that edge. That's for sure. But in terms of, in terms of political organizing, um, the structures exist. And with regard to, to a guy like Vikas Kotze, he knew exactly how to do mm. it, which is why when he left the ANC, he was snapped up by a Khan. He refused to join the DA. He was snapped up by a Khan, realized that uh, the, the fear of uh, a Khan was uh, you know, a martinet. She was, she was not going to take consensus. She didn't understand the first or last mm-hmm. thing about politics in this country or any other Especially country. the on-the-ground stuff, right? Especially the organizing, the yeah. on-the-ground Academia stuff. Academia is, is one side up in this, you know, ivory tower and actual stuff on the ground. I think, and that was the biggest problem with, with Akhang, was that it wasn't an on-the-ground They had party. no structure. It was nothing. Right. It was what she said. There was no consensus. Uh, there was no driving from the ground up. She's, I don't think Mampela mm-hmm. Rampela has been interested in anything um, anyone has said in four decades, <laughs> besides um, besides her own words. Obviously. Well, her own words are, of course, uh, are of course gold. So there, you know, there's Vickers Courts, and the guy was the guy was really wise. He, he was really experienced. He was really interesting. He was really committed. Um, and after he was uh, he, he was he was canned by Akhang uh, by SMS, and he was picked up by some of his old comrades in uh, from the ANC, from the, the radical end of the ANC, the Youth League. Um, who had now switched over to the EFF, and from a comrade, he became a fighter, and uh, that was that. How much of the EFF is political grandstanding, or the the MO is political grandstanding, in your opinion? And how much is is substance? You know, uh, because we look at something like um, you know, pay back the money in Parliament, um, and there's an element of grandstanding. To the, to the one to the one side, and the other side is you kind of get the feeling that you know to be an effective opposition, we need to break some rules now because the normal channels just aren't working anymore. And um, 
and people are now sort of looking to them to, to be to be this official opposition, which you know isn't afraid to break rules. But how much of it do you think is substance, and how much do you think is is grandstanding? Well, right now it's 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 pretty much all theatre. Um, you know, my frustration with the EFF, insofar as I have any, um, because believe you me, I'm enjoying the show with the rest of us, um, is you know it's been it's been a year now. Um, their key principles, which were evinced in their election manifesto, was a nationalization. In other words, they're going to they're going to take over the banks, they're going to take over the mines, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. B is give us our land back. So they're going to take the land back. Where are the where are the documents to sort of to sort of back this stuff up? To show how, we, how, how is it going to happen? If they're if they are going to go in with uh, I don't know MK veterans and with axes and and uh, pangas and and AK-47s. Okay, well, that's a short document, but I'd like to see it written down. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not, if they have other things in mind, it would be awesome uh, to take a look at a 100, 150-page document. There's lots of uh, there's lots of masters uh, and PhDs inside that organization right now. Let's take a look. Mm-hmm. Let's see what this is all about. Um, so right now, uh, what we have is a lot of talk. Mm-hmm. Um, that said... That's, that's politics. That's yeah. postmodern yeah. politics for you. Um, there's grandstanding all around us. I wouldn't confuse the spy tapes of victory, uh, by the DA and their lawyers. I mean, the DA's lawyers, mm-hmm. essentially, as much more than grandstanding. I mean, yes, it's using mm-hmm. the, um, the mechanisms of a democratic state, uh, i.e. an independent ju- uh, judiciary in order to, um, cop a victory. But where's the substance there? Mm-hmm. We all know that Zuma is corrupt. At this point, what is the EA, what is the DA about? Where are they going? I mean, their stuff is as thin as the EFF, if the EFFs is. Yeah, I, I remember reading a, um, a piece yesterday by Ranjini Munsami about, you know, people calling the time of death on, or, you know, getting their, the scribes are getting their pens out to call mm-hmm. time of death, pen the time of death for Jacob Zuma. And um, she's of the opinion that the Teflon man who's managed to, bounce off and bounce back from so many massive scandals that would have, you know, taken out so many other people in the past. And uh, she expects him just to carry on and be able to, you know, and, and really just bounce back from what is just another, you know, uh, might seem like a big victory to the opposition, but something that he'll still be able to, to, to go on from here. Um, to negotiate. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, look Ranjani's batting rate is 99.9% on this kind of thing. I mean, she, she knows what she's talking about, and I agree with her. Uh, there is no way the ANC is going to allow the, the spy tape saga or mm-hmm. Nkandla to take Jacob Zuma down. Um, to, to, to look weak in, uh, in the face of those two particular mm-hmm. broadsides would be suicide. They can't, they can't allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. I, something you said last night on, on, on the show, on the mm-hmm. Justice Factors show, was that they might be on the ropes and they might be reeling. But to go and do something like a recall of the president now would just look would incredibly look weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, the most powerful, uh, mm. liberation brand on this continent capitulating to what, to what essentially are, you know, scandals that they've weathered time and time mm. before over the course of the past 20 years. Um, I don't think Jacob Zuma will last his term. I think, uh, his health will be used as an out mm. at some point. Um, I don't think he's well. Mm. I really don't. Um, of course, because we're allergic to transparency in this country, uh, we can't know yeah. whether he's uh, whether he's very very sick or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a man who's who's weathered a lot of stress. He's a man who has been in prison 
for for many many years. And it, isn't it funny how those uh, leaders of sometimes dubious or questionable uh, you know um, morals seem to have this ability to outlast and outlive and outplay the rest of us? You know, yeah. <laughs> Thinking okay. of Uncle Bob just north yeah. of the border. Well, Bob's a you know Bob's an amazing sort of anomaly. Look at him. Look at him go. He's, he's just he getting was, younger, right? Yeah. He, I mean, he, he looks he, more energetic at 90. He looks younger than Helen Zilla does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, uh, he, I'll tell you, he looks fitter than uh, Zuma does. Yeah. Uh, by a long shot. I mean, Zuma looked completely unwell. And, uh, you, you know, I, I mean, you could see it in the pictures. You can't, you can't even hide it. I, I think, uh, the city press on Sunday, on Sunday, uh, laid three pictures. Zuma tw- 2006, Zuma 2010, or 2009, and Zuma 2014. Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, do you see a, do you see a market decline? Mm-hmm. You put three pictures of Uncle mm-hmm. Bob, um, alongside each other and he is literally getting younger mm-hmm. in each picture. Yeah. You know? That would be the same for Helen's as well. But yes, it would, but for different yeah, reasons. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah. Uncle Bob seems to be au naturel. Um, but, but just getting back to Jacob Zuma for a second. So if, I mean, they might use his health, mm-hmm. but then does that imply that there is a faction with inside the ANC saying, okay, how much more of this can the organization take? How much more do we have to put up with, um, you know, before we need to do something? And it might not be an official recall. Uh, they might use the health as a, as a, as an out there. Uh, do you think that's, I mean, the party is starting the upper, you know, the inner circle, uh, are starting to think like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think people like Jesse Duarte, uh, and Gwede Mantasha are, you know, are very, very committed to the party. Mm. Like this isn't a joke. The ANC isn't a joke. For, for many of its members. Um, for many of its members, it is simply a means to get wealthier. But for others, it's, it's a, it's a serious ideological home. It's not a joke. And, uh, the damage that the ANC is weathering over the course of this whole Zuma controversy, which is, uh, I, I, you know, and you could use presidency and controversy, um, interchangeably when it comes to, to his sort of, uh, when, when it comes to his time, uh, at the helm of this country. Um, without a doubt, they're, you know, they're feeling beaten up. And, uh, I, I would imagine that there are contingency plans, contingency plans afoot. But if you think it's going to be the spy tapes or if you think mm-hmm. it's going to be in Kandla, you're, you're, you're out to lunch. Yeah. Do you think that the workers party, uh, is going to have an effect on the street cred of the EFF once it launches? For example. So taking over that role of representing, you know, the man in the street. Well, a fragmented left is not going to do anyone on the left any good in this country. Um, I, I think the emergence of the EFF, why it was such a big story, um, and why perhaps uh, a few of us initially sat on it and thought that Julius Malema wasn't really going to get anywhere, um, is that we didn't understand how much hunger there is on the streets, in the townships, in smaller marginalized communities for a radical and viable left. That voice needs to be articulated in the political sphere, and that's what the EFF has done fantastically well. Once you start to fragment that, um, things start to look a little, uh, a little shakier. Um, I think, uh, a labor EFF coalition mm-hmm. led by Julius Malema would be an immensely sexy party in this country. And they would be, uh, they'd be the uh, uh, official opposition mm-hmm. by the, by, by the, by 2019. It, it would change the, the dynamics of the political landscape. Yeah. It would turn it on its head. Yeah. You know? Uh, the, the, the ANC no longer has a viable left within the, the, the alliance. Uh, the SACP are an absolute joke. Mm-hmm. The ANCYL are, uh, I mean, are, are even a bigger joke, except they don't have a punchline. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then there's, uh, then there's Kasatu, which is a, which is a disaster. So I, I think there's, uh, there's, there's certainly the, the, the hunger for it, certainly the appetite for it. Um, 
it's it's going to be that is going to what be what defines the political future of this country in the near term. So just to get back to some of the um, the aspects of the book, um, and I know Andrea's got a whole host of questions Excellent. lined up uh, about the book. Do you have a do you have a favorite uh, essay from the collection from the book? Wow. Um, do you have one that stands out? It could be like your flagship one from the book, or I, I think I think I have a couple of favorites, and and. Uh, the, the first one was um, the uh, inauguration of the party bus, the EFF party bus, uh, which I which I went to Elias Mozzaletti, um, which is a small community in Soweto, and, and watched them sort of launch their party bus on an unsuspecting public who absolutely loved it. Um, I, I think that essay really broke the um, the idea of Hannibal Elector and the idea of this collection, um, and I think it did some some very very interesting things in terms of um, pushing the limits of South African on the ground journalism taking it into a gonzo way that wasn't necessarily derivative. So I'm quite proud of that essay. And then, um, yeah, I think the one that, that sort of follows that logically is their um, final election party. Mm. Their uh, thank you for coming in yeah, uh, yeah. Adderidgeville in Pretoria. The, the Teletubby. Yeah, teletubby <laughs> yeah and that had the uh, Jacob Zimmer looks like a Teletubby in his red onesie line. Um, so yeah, I think those two would be some of my favorites, but, I, but I also like the, the Nelson Mandela stuff, mm-hmm. uh, that came before, just before this collection. Um, and one of the pieces from that is included in, in, in the, in the book. I think those are, those are strong essays. Andrew, you had some questions you wanted to, uh, attack our, yeah, attack. yeah, attack, attack. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to find out more about, um, the actual writing that, you know, the whole process of putting the book together, um, and what it was like writing those individual pieces in the heat of the campaign um, trail, you know, did, did you just feel like you were on a adrenaline high the entire time? And Yeah, pretty much. Um, I literally wrote with a bottle of Glenfiddich um, beside the, uh, beside the computer and it wasn't the same bottle. <laughs> <laughs> it was many severals of bottles of Glenfiddich. Okay. okay. Are, are you being serious? There? I, mean, I am actually <laughs> being serious. I'm actually being serious. Um, I, uh, yeah, my Maverick stuff, I, um, you know, because it's it, because it's late and you need some kind of fuel. It's either yeah. going to be coffee or cocaine, or uh, you, you know, it's it's going to be you're going to need some crutch to get you through this stuff. I mean, you you literally are the the, the more of of your anchor to reality when you're doing these these political pieces starts to slip yeah. because everybody is contesting the 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 real estate of reality, mm. and it it gets kind of terrifying. I mean, you, you, you kind of need to numb yourself a little bit. Otherwise, you are going to go insane. Um, and there's a, you know, I, I don't think I'm the first political journalist who, uh, who has needed his um, Scottish uh, mouthwash in order to, to, to make it through the night. Uh, but, yeah, it was absolutely just done in this, in, in this kind of insane five-month rush. Did, did you sort of feel like there was a, like a plot in your mind which was unraveling in reality? Did you kind of have an idea of how it was going to play out? Were you trying to sort of you know, like stay one step ahead or. Oh, I think anybody who had any idea yeah. how, how these things were going to move day to day. Yeah. Um, look, you could have, you could have guessed that there would have been cracks in the DA Ahang yeah. marriage, Definitely. but not four days later. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh, it's a Britney Spears marriage. <laughs> right. Now I get it. Okay. Um, you, you know, I, there's, there's things you just can't anticipate. I mean, you can yeah. anticipate quite a party at an EFF rally, yeah. but you can't, but you can't anticipate. 20 motorcycles following him into the stadium, yeah. you know, and, and, and revving their engines and, and 
you know, and who comes up it. with this shit? Yeah, <laughs> no, seriously, really, like, who does? I is mean, there is is there a Hollywood screenwriter behind all of this? Right. I mean, there was behind at least a Hollywood playmaker behind yeah. the DA's campaign. Yeah. And and what is the stuff you're taking to get this creative? I want some of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's it it is kind of like one big bizarre acid trip. Yeah. So you don't really know what's around the corner. I mean, obviously, you know, all of us there was things we could anticipate, but the day to day of it, absolutely not. I mean. You know, the DA marching to Latuli House to present them some paperwork, you know, and saying, we want six million real jobs. Going to Latuli House in the CBD. I mean, this is so stupid. What, what could possibly <laughs> go wrong? It's, you know, it's so insanely stupid. And then a riot breaks out for which taxpayers must protect people in blue T-shirts from the people in the yellow and green T-shirts from a running street battle. <laughs> now, you know, all of that you can foresee. But once it's unfolding in reality, it's just like, oh, yeah. really, yeah. really, yeah. you're really doing this? Come yeah. on. Um, and also, so you didn't know at the time that this was going to be, they were all going to be put together in a, in a cohesive book. No. Think you would have approached it like differently at all if you had known that? Would you have written differently or? I did, you know, I, I think halfway through, I mean, it was Stilly and Branko, uh, who, who the guys who spearhead Daily Maverick and Tafelberg, the publisher's grand design. I, I don't know which one of you came up with this idea. I mean, you were the first one to approach it, me about it. Stilly. Yeah, we, uh, I was speaking at a, at uh, the Cape Town Press Club and, uh, two of the ladies from Tafelberg were in the audience and they'd been harassing, uh, Branko, our editor for years, basically trying to get a, some kind of book out mm-hmm. of either the Daily Maverick or his story, which is an incredible story to tell as well. And, uh, and I'm obviously a little bit more amenable to those kind of public appearances and, you know, working with people. And he's just like, no, stay away from me. I don't want to, I don't want to be in the limelight kind of, you know, approach to things. And yeah, um, but, but anyway. it was like Bruce Wayne except shy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with, uh, mm. yeah, with, a, with a sort of a Serbian hitman look about him. Yeah. Um, and, and they kind of cornered us and said, look, we really want to do something. Are you guys working on anything interesting? And, uh, I think we had literally, done one or two Hannibal Elector mm-hmm. pieces by then and we said well you know this might work well as a book to you know, take this collection it's going to run for the entire campaign and they were like great I think if we had said we wanted to do a book on horse flies or something they would have said yes I mean they were yeah, like that's flattering they were like let's just <laughs> let's just do it but yeah, in hindsight I, I'm I'm you know immensely proud and, and happy that that we had this series to start with you know mm-hmm. to be our first sort of official collection if the whole daily maverick thing goes tits up at least we've got this book that we can you know Definitely. they will you know have some sort of physical presence in in the digital afterlife um and and there was yeah that was kind of how it came about sort of almost like okay cool we'll we'll go with it and see what happens and you know and uh and credit to to the ladies from uh, and the people from Tafelberg. they you know they pushed hard to you know not just make it lip service pay lip service mm. to to the whole yeah we want to do a book with you they actually did and they pushed no and they pushed going. hard and it's it's a nice product it's a it's it's a handsome it's a yeah. handsome uh it's a handsome volume yeah uh well, well i'm flattered i i i hadn't learned that it was me or <laughs> a series horse, of horse flies, flies. <laughs> you know uh so that's great um yeah it, you know there, there was sort of a coherence that came out of well, first of all, the, the the mandate always was when, when I pitched Branko on this idea of doing a kind of Hunter S. Thompson ish take on on the elections. Uh, there was always always going to be some coherence from piece to piece, and some uh, certainly a stylistic coherence, hopefully a narrative coherence. Uh, of course, we learned that there can be no narrative coherence in a universe that is coming to pieces, you know, right. pixel by pixel. 
but you know it sort of turned out well and and yeah i I think there was at a certain point uh, a reflection on on the work that this was going to be linked into into one sort of string of pearls so yeah there was definitely there was definitely that idea um yeah i also wanted to ask about the hannibal electa um by name byline um given that people knew you know that hannibal electa was you obviously your name also appeared on the articles mm-hmm. um how much freedom do you think that actually gave you? Was that also partially to sort of free free yourself in your own mind from any kind of expectations that people might have on how you write or how you interpret what's going on? Um, or I don't know how. Like, what did, what did it do for you? Did did you feel differently? Like knowing? No, were... not, not not in any meaningful way. I mean, obviously, everything that was written in those, I, I couldn't just say no. It was the Hannibal elected dude that didn't? <laughs> I, you know, it's got nothing to do with me. So tell your lawyer <laughs> don't that. Don't take responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> I take no responsibility for any of the work in this uh, in this volume whatsoever. Not at all. What what it allowed us to do was sort of focus the entire series around a, a kind of kind of sensibility which is my sensibility and, and it's the sensibility that uh that branko and i have always kind of um try to cultivate um and, and to some degree for forms the esprit of the daily maverick um kind of project i would say this sort of irreverence this in-your-faceness this there's no fear uh we jump first and ask questions later type deal um bolstered by serious journalism um so yeah it, it was this notion that we could corral all of that within a very very tight package and that package was headlined by by Hannibal Elector. Uh at first we were doing a lot of training to our readers about this stuff. The first few people pieces I don't know if you remember study but people were totally weirded out by it. Yeah. It's like why is the guy mentioning the coffee at the press conference? Like what's he writing about? It's not about him. Yeah. And it was like well see we, we we're doing something different here. And I, I think the Hannibal Elector element was a cue, and we won a lot of people over. I mean, people were horrified by those first few pieces just because they've never read them before. Mm. They, they really had read it's almost nothing. like a warning. Then when they saw that, they were like, okay, we know what to expect. Of exactly. It's like a parental warning for the lyrics on a okay. rap album. It says you know, something about the state of our, of our, of our media, of our mm. journalism, that um, you know, a lot of people haven't been exposed to that kind of stuff to recognize that. I mean, I remember one of, one of the other uh, previous pieces you penned um, that kind of got a hell of a lot of media attention. Uh, was the open letter to South Africa from foreign media, mm-hmm. which was a, a an incredible piece of satire. Yeah, um, and it was picked up and and it was basically, um, you know, th- this was the opening line. It was uh, the foreign media in South Africa were camping outside with their graveyard vigils in front of candlelit vigils and you know outside of Nelson Mandela's home and hospital, and basically you know anything that walked was being reported on. Mm-hmm. You know. You know, a bird has just shat on a TV camera lens and, you know, that made CNN, you know, front, you know, Breaking. made headlines. Yeah. And, and the opening line of, of this piece was, Dear South Africa, please get the fuck out the way. You know, wait, that probably came out wrong. Let us explain. And there was, you know, it just followed on just, you know, we are the foreign media and, and, and I was fielding calls from, you know, local press mm-hmm. and, and I think the star ran uh, with the story yeah, in the did. afternoon about this, this piece that was blowing up and, yeah, People the, didn't the Johannesburg Star wrote a piece about warning everybody that this piece was satire, which yeah. in its oh, term, which which may have been satire. Well, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so that was you know I, I had the reporter call me and says uh, and asked so so is this satire? And I'm like, yes, uh, it is. And he goes, why do you think so many people don't get it? And I'm like. 
well, you know, I just haven't been exposed. I went with the line people mm-hmm. haven't been mm-hmm. exposed to it. And, and, you know, and, and that's, I mean, that is true though, to a certain extent. Yeah. There isn't a lot of it. And, and the, the other thing about it, I, I will say is that it prodded almost every single sensitivity that I could po- possibly mm-hmm. figure out in the South African context. I mean, this was supposed to be a very provocative piece of work. Yeah. Um, you know, mostly because, it, you know, it was a, it was a kick in the pants. It was like, guys, wake up. Come on. We cannot let these people yeah. define this narrative. We can't. And, and the funniest thing was that some people picked up on the fact that you'd lived in Canada for a while. So oh, you were the foreign yeah. media and yeah. it just kind of like, you know, exploded out there and, and eventually got picked up on this American life. And it was great, just incredible to see this whole thing like, you know, unravel and travel the world in, in, you know, it was, it was, it, it was such an interesting thing. I actually wasn't in the country at the time. I was on a fellowship in Italy. Oh, that's and, what foreign media does. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and uh, I, I was lying in my bed after I'd filed to Branco, and I remember he he posted it around nine, and my phone dinged, ping, Twitter, and then pinged again, and then it was like ping, 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 ping. It was like popcorn going off on my phone. I was just like, I'm gonna turn this off. I'm gonna try to get some sleep. I wake up in the morning. I'll see how many death threats. My God, I mean, I could read you some stuff that people. Uh, uh, I remember getting one Facebook message from. Um, from one woman, and the opening line to that was, "Hi, Richard. I hope you fucking die, you piece of shit." <laughs> and then it sort of wow. pr- proceeded to to sort of list off a bunch of ways I could commit suicide and do the world a big <laughs> favor. Um, you know, lots of people were very, very angry at the piece, um, especially the foreign media. I mean, all of the foreign correspondents yeah. have ceased even engaging with me when I walk into <laughs> a room with them. Nobody loves me anymore, Steady. Nobody. It's it's uh, really cold out there. And that's how you know you're doing your job. Oh, okay. Doing your job properly. Um, so you're back off to Canada um, mm. in, in what, tomorrow, right? You're yes. back to Canada. Yeah. Uh, that must be a com- feel like a completely different planet to, yes, to what is yeah. South Africa and also having especially followed the campaign trail so closely. Um, I mean, does it blow your mind when you go back there and, and look at the, you know, the stuff that's covered in, in the media there versus – you know what's going on here. I mean, I, I've heard it said. You know, you know, Canada's, you know, this placid sort of, you know, mm. straight down the line See? kind of place. You know, boring. everything works. Boring wasn't the word I wanted to use, but you know, <laughs> is that your take on the place? Well, t- Toronto is a very strange town. Um, it, it's it's a very very odd place. It's, a, it's with a, with an odd mayor. With, with an odd mayor, yeah. And I mean, th- that's part of the strangeness. Yeah. I mean, something something has to crack yeah. under the placid bubble at some point. Um, it's a country that doesn't know itself yet. Um, it's a country that is, um, riven by a, a deep, deep, dark conservatism, uh, at, and th- at the same time is, is kind of leavened by this, this very, very rigorous socialism. Um, so there's universal healthcare and, you, you know, our, the, the, the prime minister of the country could, mm. could pretty much, you know, run the tea party. Um, so it, it's a strange it's place Stephen with, with, Harper, yeah, with some strange contradictions. And, and, and it's not like that isn't, you know, I wrote a couple of pieces about Stephen Harper for the, uh, for the national newspaper in, in Canada, the Globe and Mail. And on the second piece, um, I, no, I believe the third piece, I was told to back off. Mm. You know, so it's not like, it's not like that isn't a space that is, mm. that is contested as well. Um, and, and can be quite, uh, let's say, intellectually intellectually dangerous you, you know i mean i've never been told to back off here how was that uh, how was that message conveyed to you in an email in an email by my editor said oh, really? uh, the powers that be have asked you to back off um read between the lines that that paper is run by the establishment mm. um you, you know uh white 
Christian must have males. made you so furious. Didn't you just want to yeah, I think write I popped, more and more? Uh, yeah, I just popped a yeah. vein in my head. Um, and, 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 you know, I do most of my work in Africa. I mean, 99.9% of the work, the work is done here. So the, the, the reason for going back to, to Toronto among sort of personal stuff um, is uh, to finish up a couple of big pieces, to finish up this book. Um, and I kind of need to be out of the fray for a little mm. while just to just to finish up these major projects. The the book being the uh, the big uh, the big the giant Africa. enormous never ending story of right? Africa three point yeah. So uh, yeah, that 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 book I I just need a button down and mm. uh, I need to go to the 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 quietest most boring place in the world, um, <laughs> and and sort of get into a basement and not leave until that is done. And that isn't a joke. I mean, I've got to finish this book. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- what's the book about? I mean, uh, we know it's about Africa, but what's the sort of central message? I mean, is there a central message? You know, because Africa is a country after all. Right? Yes, it is. Well, yeah. especially when everyone's got Ebola. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the thing about this book is that it's gone through about four billion iterations. Um, it's been a it's been a wild, wild ride. I mean, I, I've been researching this thing uh, along with uh, the writer Kevin Bloom, another uh, Daily Maverick stalwart. Of days gone by, um, and and Kevin and I have been on this thing for for a long, long time. Uh, we've gone to I think twenty countries at this point. Wow! And uh, the idea is to represent Africa in a way that that hasn't really happened before. Hard, hardcore investigative journalism mm-hmm. um, that really takes us through the story of Africa Rising. So, not having, so you say representing Africa the way it hasn't been done before, but I mean, you you kind of got. Almost, we know the sort of forgotten lost continent story mm. that that's been sort of pervasive um, over the last century or so, uh, and then we had a, a little blip of Africa 2.0. Mm-hmm. You know, so how how's this book not you know is going to be different? I mean, is it going to be more real, more raw? I mean, versus those those stories? Yeah, well, I mean, Kevin and I, our conception of of sort of the three stages of African development, um, the first stage being the pre-colonial era, you know. Dozens and thousands of civilizations sort of coming together, going apart. Um, a rich, varied history. Um, not a wonderful history. Uh, this isn't no noble, savage history by any by any you know stretch of the imagination. It's a difficult history, but it sort of comes to an end with colonialism. But Kevin and I don't separate uh, the end of colonialism and the beginning of liberation as as two different stages. We sort of see that as an arc, all of which leads up to the year two thousand. In the year 2000, what happens is that the world shifts in a very fundamental way, and Africa starts to rise in in, in sort of the nature of raw economics. Um, all of a sudden, growth rates start rocketing up, GDP rates start rocketing up. A lot of that has to do with the, the sort of incursion of China as a major player onto the continent, the the rise of the the rest of the developing world, or the rise of the rest, as the economists would call it. And so, you have this these series of catalysts which are changing the continent in a very, very fundamental way. What's more, by 2050, you have 2 billion people on this continent. There's 1.1 billion now. By 2050, there's 2 billion. Nigeria will be the third biggest country in the world by 2050. What, um, do you know the, the stat for um, the number, the percentage of people under the age of 15? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be well over well. 60. Yeah. It'll be the youngest, the youngest part of the world in history. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be nuts. It's, it's just, it's, it's such a transformative event that what Africa becomes is a frontier. It becomes a place where you have to come to, you have to engagement, engage with if you want to grow, especially if you're the, you're the Europeans or the Chinese or the Japanese, all of whom are shrinking. So in this weird way, you're looking at a return. If, you know, the theories change year to year, 
But the sort of transcendent point of our book is that in a weird way, the, 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 the world, the humanity is returning here. We're coming back. This is becoming the focus again. And blips like Ebola, blips like, um, I don't know, like, like, uh, you know, coups in Boko the city. Haram. I mean, you know, Boko Haram. I mean, let's stop kidding around. Look at what is happening in Europe right now. Those guys can't tie their own shoes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is literally invading the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, you know, this kind of stuff happens all over the world. Uh, by no means is this continent perfect and it's never going to be. Uh, it's developing in ways that are completely unprecedented. Any theories of, of, of development, of demographic dividends, of all of this nonsense, I think we can all throw that crap out the window. And our theories will look very different by 2050. Um, but it's going to be, it's going to be a heck of a ride. And we're trying to, we're trying to chart the, um, the moment that kind of, that kind of, that toggles it all, mm. that sort of switches it all. So you've just come back from the Central African Republic. That's right. Um, is there a highlight out of, out of these 20 countries? Was there one that kind of blew your mind to the extent that you're like, holy crap, that's not what I expected? Or did you go in with sort of no expectations? And, yeah, yeah, I think the best thing to do is go in with an empty mo notebook mm. and an empty brain. Mm. I mean, any, any expectations you have, you're just going to get kicked in the nuts mm. at some point and taught a very, very harsh lesson. Mm. Um, look, you, you know. Uh, Was there one that sort of surprised you like, on the upside, like you was not at all what you'd expected, but it was, you know, completely, um, you know, out of the complete realm of your expectations. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think almost everywhere we went had one of those stories and that's mm. not to be sort of, you know, happy face, cherry, positive mm. dude. Um, it's just everywhere you were, mm. even in a place like Juba in, in South Sudan, we'd encounter stories that are, that are kind of, that are kind of strange, that kind of throw you for a loop and are, you know, you, you can definitely see how things are developing, how things are moving forward. Um, and then there are places that are just so nightmarishly terrible. You just have no idea how they can get fixed. Um, and then, and then there's a place like Zimbabwe where you walk around, you're like, this could get sorted out in an afternoon. Mm. You know, these guys need to sit down, have a chat, you know, take care of the rule of law, fill in some potholes, and they have one of the most amazing countries on the planet. Mm. So it, it's, it's strange. Um, a, a lot of the stuff we encountered, uh, you can, you, you know, you leave feeling really, really gloomy. Um, the, the Central African Republic has, has a century of development to do before it could be considered, um, you know, a reasonable place to live. Mm. Um, South Sudan, less so. Um, if they just got together, put their heads together, there's the will, um, there's the money, and they're the people, the intelligent people, people who have returned educated from the United States, the Lost Boys, to fix that country up literally in a matter of decades. This book uh, is, has been commissioned locally. Was yes. it an international? Uh, mm, local? It's both. It was. There's an international publisher, Portobello Granta, mm -hmm. and uh, Jonathan Ball uh, over here. So they uh, they sort of teamed up to um, give us not nearly enough money to uh, <laughs> run around the world and uh, investigate. It's been quite a journey, though. It's been going. Oh, no, it's been nuts. I mean, it's been, it's, it's on for a while now. I mean, it's been crazy. And every time we thought it was done, we'd look at the material and go, um, "No, this is pretty good toilet paper, but it's not gonna it's not gonna cut it." Time and time again, we've, we've had to sort of go back to the drawing board to, to where we, we arrived at last August, Kevin and I. Um, and we were like, we don't have anything. We, this, this is just rubbish. We'd, we'd tried this really, really fancy structure and we sat down and we knocked our heads and we, you know, we, we were on the verge the of suicide. Yeah. The, you the know, I'd say, my God. Uh, I even went down to bells for that. <laughs> um, and we, we just came up with, with, uh, a structure and, and a way of doing it that was more humble, that was less grandstanding, that was way less about us, if about us at all, um, that was simple and modest and true. And uh, 
I'm I'm very very proud of us for for that. I, I think that's sort of been our greatest stroke is just is just allowing this material to speak to us, and for us to get the fuck out of its way so we can tell the story properly. Is the uh, I mean I know it's probably something that you hate being asked, and especially from your publishers in terms of a due date when a <laughs> manuscript being sent in for a final editing, and maybe is there a launch date? Well, Kevin and I being Jewish, every day is a due date. <laughs> Um, but, but in this case, I, I think I understand what you're asking. Uh, we're going to have a manuscript by the end of the year. Um, it'll be a complete manuscript. It'll go into, uh, we're very excited. Ivan, uh, Ivan Vladislavich is, is going to edit it. Um, as far as Kevin and I are concerned, he's, uh, he's the man, mm-hmm. um, in terms of a literary edit. Uh, we, we have lots of readers looking out over it. We're, we're double checking, triple checking, checking facts. Um, so yeah, I think by the end of the year, we'll have, uh, we'll have a, um, We'll have a manuscript. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book as well as a, 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 a an encyclopedia-sized size book at some stage. You're going to be able to bench press it. Yeah. Mm. Um, just uh, b- before we uh, we end off uh, the show today, and just looking back at, I mean, the campaign trail, the book mm-hmm. until Julius comes. Um, you know, you, you said you don't, you know, you don't, you didn't ever want a beat as a journalist. You yeah. didn't want to have a beat, but obviously, getting this far involved. With the Daily Maverick and with the campaign trail as Hannibal Elector, you basically immense, you know, immerse yourself in, uh, in, in right. the politics mm-hmm. of this country. You know, um, is this the first time you've had that kind of, um, deep and, and sort of unbreakable bond with, with the, with the politics, uh, uh, as a beat or as a, yes. as something to follow? Yeah. I mean, and do you feel it's changed? Uh, you've grown with the experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- there's no doubt about that. First of all, the Africa stuff over the course of the past four and a half years, where, where perhaps my earlier work was more focused on culture, um, all of a start, su- sudden started switching to politics. I mean, you can't really look at African countries mm-hmm. um, and consider them deeply without considering their politics very deeply. And then you go into geopolitics, and then you go into colonialism, and then and then and then and then. So, um, you know, having taken that journey, um, I'd just been reading so much politics. I mean, I'd been reading white papers, and I'd been reading you know, political journals and et cetera, et cetera. So all of a sudden you become steeped in all of the stuff, plus all of the theory, you know, your wretched of the earths and your, uh, you, you know, your other post-colonial theory. Um, so, so you're, you're drinking the stuff down by the, by the jug load, by the Glenfiddich model load. Um, and, and, you know, going into, going into the, the election campaign and taking it as seriously as we all did, um, I felt was both a, a compliment to my Africa work and was complimented by my Africa work. So it felt, it felt like a very natural fit. It, it, the glove just slid on to use a really labored, really cliched metaphor, which I'd never use at the Daily Maverick. I promise you, Steve. Um, <laughs> even if you did, we wouldn't let it slide. Yeah, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and, and so you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, this South African pol- political beat that, that I'm doing with, with the Daily Maverick is not going anywhere. I mean, this is, this is it for the next little while. This is going to be my main kind of, my main gig. Um, yeah. The day job. Um, Andrew, do you have any more sort of journalistic angles you'd like to interrogate our, our uh, guests with? Yeah, I think just um, the last thing that I wanted to ask was you're at a point now where you can write really confidently, uh, you know what you're talking about, and it comes through beautifully in mm. the way you write. Thank you. Um, when you were first starting out, I know that you studied um, film and television mm. or something along those lines, and you realized that that wasn't right for you. and you wanted to make a shift and you decided writing was where you wanted to go. Um, how did you move from that point? I mean, 
how did you build that, the, the kind of confidence that you needed to be where you are now? Like, what, what was the process? And didn't it feel quite overwhelming and daunting at that point, like starting out? Well, I think confidence is a weird mixture of hope and stupidity. Um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, we always need that as writers. I think, you know, it's just like, I hope yeah. what I'm doing is good and I'm too stupid to know otherwise. So hell, this is me, you know, uh, but you know, hard work. I think, I think people are always a little, uh, underestimate a little bit how much hard work, um, writing actually is and how long it takes to, to do your apprenticeship. Well, and to give birth to a thousand words in a couple of hours. I mean, yeah, is, yeah, is, is the result of, of close to a decade's hard, hard mm. graft, you know, so it's, it's nothing that comes instantly, and I, I urge younger writers and, and younger journalists just not to not to force that element of it. You you get there, you really really do with the work. You know, one day you're going to sit down and write a thousand words, and it's going to be like, how did I ever find this? You know, not you know, it's always hard. It's always sucking out pieces of your psyche, and it's always you know taking finite energy and burning it, always. But you know, you're not killing yourself every time you're, you're sitting down to do a thousand words. You're just not. Otherwise, it's not a viable you know, a uh, vocation. Um, but you know, I, I mean, my, my early, early pieces were, were, were quite, you know, some of them are really weak. I want to um, find them. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, but, but the, the weirdest thing, I think the first thing I ever published is the most anthologized piece, uh, I, I ever did write. And it was, it was, um, it was a satirical piece, probably even drier than the, um, than the fact you to South Africa yeah. from, from the foreign press. And it's been, it's been anthologized in about, I would say 20 textbooks all over the world, strangely. And be, be uh, careful, um, be careful about what you first write. Because when that's the thing, <laughs> well, I'm just thinking back, what, what thinking back to, to the first piece that, uh, I ever got published and that was in defense of Tiger Woods. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, and his escapades of the fire hydrant in, incident. Has that you, come to define you? You, de- you, you defended Tiger Woods. I defended Woods. Tiger Woods <laughs> successfully, I thought. Uh, in yeah. fact, actually, a whole host of women came out in support of my argument, and a whole host of men didn't. So it was quite, uh, it was quite something. So I'm just thinking back. That could be, that could be my defining piece of journalism. You probably eat for free at Hooters now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, that's not such a bad thing. Um, so the elections are done. The book's out. Julius has emerged. Mm-hmm. What's next for AVEFF and Julius and, and B South Africa in your mind? Well, we've got to ride all of this stuff into the 2016 elections. I mean, what's really, really strange about this cycle is that we, it really does feel like we're in campaign mode for 2016. I don't know if you guys feel, feel the same thing, but I really feel like everybody is focused and sort of starting to draw the battle lines for 2016, which is a huge, huge milestone in this country's history. And I, and I, and I'll tell you why. And that's because I think the ANC is going to lose wards mm-hmm. in a very, very big way. I think they're going to lose this city. I think they're going to lose Twana. I think they're going to lose Kualani. I think they're going to lose some big, 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 big uh, municipalities. And is that because of the emergence of something like the Workers' Party? <clears throat> or a combination of that and what we saw was almost two elections happening in South Africa side by side, the urban vote and the rural vote. And if you split those two, you would see that the drop in the metropolitan areas right. was much, much bigger than than um, than if the overall drop that the ANC experienced. So, is it a combination of the two? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, no one in the rural areas is going to be uh, is is going to um, risk their 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 social grants for a whim, for an ideological whim that they don't really that they mm-hmm. can't really get behind. 
Um, and, and of course, the the ANC still has that that emotional heft that mm. that you know people feel that liberation, great, goodwill. Yes, I mean that the, you know major major kinship with this uh, with this organization. Um, in the cities, very very different. The DA has been, been doing twenty years of very very hard work in these wards, and again, I can't stress enough how uh, how important that underground uh, work is for you know for politics mm. in this country, and the EFF. Have been very aggressive about setting up their structures, and and with people like Vikas Kutsa, um on the ground, they have they have a lot of expertise. Mm-hmm. So they are definitely going to start bleeding ANC wards mm-hmm. from the from, from especially the if any sort of coalition with a workers union Absolutely. party. Absolutely, and so and then, and then we and then we start throwing the the intangibles. We don't know if NUMS is going to come around to developing a workers party. I mean, they say they are, but you know, times mm-hmm. are ticking. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll just have to see. If they do, you know, it, it's it's going to be a heck of a campaign. Does that bode well for the country? Yes. In Insofar as anything bodes well for the country. And, you know, that comes down to the conclusion of the book, and that is that until South Africans start being South Africans, until we start fighting for our rights, and until we're vigilant um, consistently, until we understand that responsibility is uh, is ours and not something that we outsource to a government, we're doomed. Um, insofar as we understand that, Yes, the fact that there's an emerging left wing and the fact that, uh, th- there's real, real opposition and real, real, um, th- there is an attacking left and an attacking right. That's good for democracy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, um, principle of more competition, right? So well, more, com- yeah, yeah. more competition. If, for us if you're a Democrat, it's good. If you're not a Democrat, it's all nonsense. <laughs> you, you know, it's like, well, who cares who runs this place? It's all about money. And I can understand that statement. You know, uh, this is still a mining, a mining country. We're still, it's still about who runs the joint gets to extract most of the diamonds. Um, you know, I, I understand that position. I'm, I'm sympathetic with it. Um, but if you're a Democrat, then the more viable democratic institutions, the more parties fighting for power, that's a, that's a good thing. You're sitting across from someone who's a budding journalist who's looking forward to Forging a career. Intern with a capital I. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> what, what besides the Glenn Fiddich angle mm. is the best advice you can give to someone looking to start a career in journalism? Um, curiosity. You know, just never let that die, please. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than a, than a budding journalist who is, who is cynical, who is, and you know, cynicism is, is, is a, is a very blunt tool. Um, it's it's necessary, but it's you know it's got to be one tool in your toolbox. Just be curious. I don't think curiosity and cynicism are mutually exclusive. No, at all, though. Oh, and you're right; they're not. Yeah. But 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 so, unfortunately, cynicism becomes the bigger bigger tool, and it kind of dulls mm. the uh, it dulls the curiosity, and that's that's just deadly. Read. I mean, we've spoken about this a lot. Just yeah. read as much as you possibly can, everything, and uh, and just go out there. Go out there with your notebook. Your notebook's your friend. That's good advice. Thanks. Cool. Well, that's the end of the Daily Maverick Show. Another chapter. We wish you well on your travels back to Canada. Thank good luck much. with the rest of the book. Uh, Thank you. We're finishing off your other projects. I'll need it. Um, Thanks. I believe you got uh, a special delivery coming in a couple of months. I as do. Well. I do. Yeah. Good Some luck with that. Yeah, yeah that, that's going to be a whole new uh, campaign trail yeah. ride, emotional roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Good luck with that. Thank and, you. Uh, come back safe. We can't wait to have you back at the Daily Maverick. Awesome. Thanks. Cheers, guys. Thanks so much.